Grace and peace to all of our new and consistent listeners. And we would like to say Merry Christmas to you all. Welcome to the Truth of the Matter Is podcast. This is episode number 30. I'm your host, Daniel, and I'm here with Jonathan. Merry Christmas, man. Merry Christmas, Daniel. And we hope that everyone enjoys their Christmas and understands the reason for a season. You know, when I think about Christmas, I'm just truly appreciative of, you know, this particular season. It's my favorite season. It's drawing near to the end of the year. And when I think about Christmas over the years, I've recognized that it's been less and less about the gifts and more and more about the ultimate gift, who is Jesus Christ. And that's where my feelings and emotions and thoughts have been geared towards just appreciating what he has done, him understanding what his mission was, and his love for each and every one of us. So without a doubt, I'm just thankful for this opportunity. And I understand that it's Jesus's birthday. At least that's what I believe. You know, mm-hmm. people out there look at the particulars and say, well, he wasn't actually born on this day. But the important thing is that, you know, looking at the technicalities, to me, that's not the importance. The important is, is represent, understanding and representing the fact that on this day or any day, whatever day it is, he deserves to be celebrated just like each and every one of us on our birthday. Our birthday deserves to be celebrated as well. Wouldn't you agree? For sure. Um, I'm not really big on holidays as it is, but Uh the meaning of it, I respect. Okay. So now that we've got the house cleaning out the way, we are actually going to revisit last week's conversation, episode 29. What is the true meaning of life? And we're going to actually tie it in today's message. Okay. So before we continue, prayer sounds like a good idea, right? It sure does. Okay, let's pray. So who's doing the honors? Is it me or is it you? It'll be you since, you know, you believe in holidays. All right, you know. I'll stand by that. All right. Oh, God, in the name of Jesus, we bless you today. We thank you for today. As a matter of fact, happy birthday, Jesus. We appreciate your appearance, your love for us. We thank you for thinking of us to come and enter our world to save us from sin. We understand the reason for the season, Lord. As we go to your word today, we ask for clarity and truth. Nothing more, nothing less. Open up our understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you. So please bring your presence, bring your love, bring your life and your light to us and our memories. We say these things with humbleness and pure acknowledgement. In Jesus' precious and glorified name, we say, Amen. Amen. Yeah, so last week was an interesting conversation, I might add. And we want to possibly clarify a few things and extend a few more thoughts on at least some of our perspectives. Give a bit more detailed portions of what we were thinking at the time we were thinking it. Normally, we move on to a new topic. But last week's episode was really good. 
and I appreciate Daniel's perspective. I confide in him for knowledge and insight. I've always recognized him to be a pretty remarkable, smart person. And he's always been a person that's been a straight shooter. Wouldn't you say so, Daniel? I appreciate the thoughts. I didn't know you thought so highly of me. But um Yeah. You know, I'm definitely a straight shooter. Yeah. So of course we read out of the book of Luke chapter twelve and we were reading verse thirteen through twenty one. And it was based on this parable of a rich fool. Now I mentioned that I only spoke about verse 15 and I keyed in on this verse because I felt that the entire text was a simple and direct message overall. It was verse 15 that caught my attention. So remind the people what it said, Daniel. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Yeah, so with that, I realized that John wrote and wrote something you know specific in first john and was verse that complements what jesus said about what we should be on guard for in life john took it a step further in first john chapter 2 verse 16 by saying for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh which means craving for us and sensual gratification and the lust of the eyes greed and longing of the mind and the pride of life assurance in one's own resources or in the stability of earthly things these do not come from the father but are from the world itself now the reason when we read that from the amplified version is because it provided a much more detailed explanation right it also highlighted the very word jesus used and that was greed and we find this word used in relation and in accordance to the lust of the eyes so looking back at verse 15 jesus is correctly saying that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Working and placing yourself in places to receive an abundance of possessions either happens on the basis that your parents establish an amazing and supportive foundation so that you can benefit from it for years to come, or yourself, right? Or you found the key to take advantage of opportunity, and you're doing well off to create that profound experience. So to be clear, we broke down the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and what the pride of life looks like. Interesting enough, right, interesting enough, I thought that there were a few more things we needed to address, and much more greater detailed here. So, with that being said, how about we begin, right? So let's start off with what sin is, right? So sin is an act of disobedience to the law of God. The reality is the desire of human beings are in opposition to the eternal law of God. So you might ask, well, how did that start? Well, the sinful nature comes in when God created humanity, right? We were created good, and so was everything, according to God. We were without sin, and of course, a sinful nature. So we didn't have that. When God created us, God created man in his own image and woman, right? Therefore, we are known to be in the image of God. He created male and female, right? And this can be found, obviously, in Genesis 1, verse 27. It was Genesis chapter 3 is where we see the disobedience of Adam and Eve. 
by that one action, sin entered into their nature. They were immediately strucken with a sense of shame and unfitness, which is why they hid from God's presence. The reality is they were deceived by a lie. Now keep this in mind as well. Those who aren't followers of Christ today have been deceived by numerous amount of lies. Right? And this is accordance to what we believe as believers. Right? We believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And the only one that you could get to heaven is through him. Right? So we're keeping in context with what the biblical view is. So, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 42 through 44, it reads, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So that's what Jesus says about the devil, right? So let's dig even deeper. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. It also says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Yeah, so when you see what a lie is and you see what has happened since the beginning, we know that lies are deceitful, right? You're deceiving someone. You are giving the impression that something ought to be true, but it isn't, right? We also should understand what 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, right? It means... It tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, which really means that Satan capitalizes on our love of the light in order to deceive us in many different ways and levels. Right. He wants us to think that he is good, truthful, loving and powerful. All things that God is. Interesting enough. So let's keep it a buck. Right. The devil portrays himself in one way in society, at least the way that we've seen him portray, right? We see him as a devilish person, right? With horns, right? Appealing to the majority of how most people have visualized him in images and paintings. Most people are not drawn to darkness, right? They're actually drawn to the light, right? Absolutely. Therefore, Satan appears as a creature of the light to draw us to himself and his lies. So what we have to recognize, too, is that the trust between God and humanity was broken because of the transgressions by Adam and Eve. 
That is why we can conclude that we are technically in a fallen condition of sin. The truth is, by nature, we are selfish people that are lacking love. Why do I say that, you might ask? Well, because we were born into sinful thoughts, actions, motives, the desiring to please ourselves come first, and the acknowledgement of God's law comes a distant second. So when we took a look at the three temptations, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's because of our sinful nature. It's easily picking for us to fall under those types of obsessions. I'm pretty sure a lot of you are familiar with the seven deadly sins, which are envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, slot, and wrath, which is all rooted in biblical scripture. Now, the seven deadly sins can be thought of as a disposition towards sin and a separation from God. So if we go over them, lust is a strong passion or longing, especially for sexual desires. Gluttony is an excessive and ongoing eating of food or drinking. Greed is an excessive pursuit of material goods. The key here is that last week we talked about the excessiveness from just the engagement of certain things. The reality is something we spoke about last week is that anything done in error has a lot to do with the overdoing of things. Now, the question about the dibbling and the dabbling, we are all expected to dibble and dabble in a lot of things. But the ultimate conclusion is eventually you have to come out of it. And if you remain in it, that is where you have the problem. Wrath is a strong anger and hate towards another person. Keyword in there is strong. Envy is the intense desire to have an item that someone else possesses. Pride is an excessive view of oneself without regards to others or for others. Now, Dan. Sloth is an excessive laziness or the failure to act and utilize one's talents. Wow, thank you, Dan. I caught that. Appreciate that. Now, you made a point last week that some of the issues we face feel normal and natural. I would tend to agree with that. There's a battle that we all face that no one escapes from. The battle with doing what is right, understanding how following rules and laws and a religion can damage you and how you operate. So realizing that we should check out Romans 7 and Daniel, I want you to read the whole chapter slowly. And then after I want your thoughts. So please take away. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For an example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. 
So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who has raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we were bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what covenant really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found out the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me for in my inner being I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me what a wretched man I am 
Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I, myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So, thoughts, ideas? Very confused and overcomplicated passage. <laughs> I I don't view it as a very confusing. So let's let's sit in this. In passage. terms of the wording. Okay. You know? What do you, yeah. What do it's you It's like a this, but that, but because of that, a this and it's <laughs> like yeah, that can be confusing for most people. Okay. So let's just try to break this down a little bit. What he's trying to say, or what he's saying, and let me not say try. It's simple context. You ask me, or you you have a, you have an idea about what he's saying. No, I'm saying break it down in a very simple way okay. to understand. So basically, what he's saying is that the law was designed to be good, to help us out. However, mm-hmm. sin. The sinful nature that is within us is what causes us to have this confliction. Okay? okay? Now, the reason why it causes us to have this confliction is because the concept of the Judaic law is following laws. But I know you've heard us saying that laws were meant to be broken. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why laws are being broken is because people are incapable of fulfilling the law to its perfectness the way it's desired to have. You see, what God did was he placed law down here for us to follow, knowing that we will struggle with it. Now, the reason why he did that in the first place is because he wanted us to understand that because the law was put into place, it was put us into place so that we can recognize what our sin really was. So imagine trying to fulfill something and you can't fulfill it. The reason why you can't fulfill it is because there's a battle within that you're struggling with. You're trying to do good, but this overwhelming desire, this matter, this affliction, this I need to has to do with the very nature that you have. For example, let's look at pornography, for example. And men and women, naturally, we have a desire for one another, right? Men have desires for women. Women have desires for men. And to be transparent, there are some men that have desires for men and some women that have desires for women. Within, naturally, that's your desire. However, it's stated that these desires to transpire in a committed relationship. Now, that doesn't change the fact that naturally you have these desires. So the law says you should wait until marriage, right? But what do we have? We have a society. We have a generation of people that have these overwhelming desires within that they can't, sub- they can't subject themselves to follow that law. So they broke the law, right? A passage that we can bring up is when Jesus said he steps it up. He brings it to a whole nother level. He says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully within his or her heart has already committed sin. Why? Because that's a whole nother standard. So you're recognizing that the standard that was put into place is not capable of being fulfilled 
under the human being on subjected other the human will. We can't do it. And the reason why we can't do it is because of that internal battle that we have. So what does Paul say? He says, every time I try to do good, evil is present with him. So he's recognizing that I want to do the good things, but I can't do the good things. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. So that's a battle of what the sinful nature is all about. So because sin is living in you, there's a battle between trying to do what is good versus doing what is not good. And he's recognizing that that is the trouble that we all deal with as human beings. So when I told you last week that these things that we fall subject to when we're watching porn or we're dibble and dabbling in certain things, by nature, we have a curiosity aspect, right? We're curious about certain things. Some of the things we get involved in, right? It could take you 15 minutes to do something. That's not good. And it could take you 15 years to get out of it. So one of the things of acknowledging Jesus Christ is that he came to assist you with these battles that you have. You're not expected to do it alone, because if you do it alone, you're not going to win. You're going to fail every single time. You get what I'm saying now? Oh, yeah, it's the, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so like the same thing. Yeah, so it's, the thing is we are going to deal with these things. Right? Anything done in in extreme will lead to error. When we look at the old ways of the written code, what was lacking was love. A prime example of that is the Pharisees, right? They lacked grace and mercy. That was something Jesus provided that the law doesn't provide, right? There was a lack of forgiveness. So yes, they knew the law, but there wasn't compassion and understanding and space for growth that was absent. So Jesus brought love into the picture. So we see that transition where they failed in those aspects, right? They understood what the law was. But understanding what the law is and having grace and mercy for another person is two completely different things, right? That's what Jesus and his presence came and brought not just understanding but compassion and plenty of chances for us to change we're expected not to do it overnight but we're still expected to make strides to improve what it is that god is requesting over a period of lifetime it can't be that we're continuing the elementary ways of thinking and operating there comes a point that repentance is, isn't just an idea of asking for forgiveness. But with that, with those chances, there's an expectation of changed behavior. Right. So. I'm glad I wanted to provide that with a bit more context is because people you mentioned last week also that there are some churches that are very critical of individuals that can't control what it is that they have desires and passions for but to act as if all of us don't have these things and god isn't aware of your personal struggles is to pretend that you're far and beyond the error that which all of us are subject to so like last week i agreed with you like a person who goes through these things and isn't showing the compassion that god has showed them 
is for them to disregard the fact that we're supposed to be operating in love. And that love is the love that God has shared us. You see, love is something that is commanded by us all. We are all capable of commanding that thing. Love is not something that is a nature of people, right? It's something, you know, some people say, well, love is a feeling. Love is something that you can command. You choose to love somebody in their flaws. You choose to love somebody in spite of what they've done to you. You choose to love someone after they've hurt you. You choose to love someone if they don't understand why you're making the sacrifices that you have. Right. It's a commandment. That's why God says that it's a choice that we have to love him and accept his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Right. Without love and not having the liberty to choose or the freedom to do it in, then is it really love? I wouldn't think so. So. The scripture says God is love. That isn't his character. That's his very nature. We were separated from God. Therefore, we lost that connection. That is why we are broken and wounded and we were left in the condition lacking him. So let's look at first John chapter four. And this is probably the last extensive reading I'll give you today. Daniel It's verse seven through twenty one. And it says. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And what we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made in perfect love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Any thoughts to this passage? 
think it's pretty straightforward that how you treat other people is important and you can't not just treat them, but you have to really have a genuine compassion for them. That's what I think about when I read this. Yes, yeah, not just that. And I understand that a lot of people don't quite understand this, but in time, I hope people do. The way, the reason why we are told to love God first is because loving God first gives us the compassion and understanding to love one another. When you don't love God, how can you love other people is the question because God's true element of showing his love is the sacrifice and the opportunity that he has provided us. And we're only doing the very thing that he's done for us. See, people ask, well, how can God look over this world and the broken, wounded world that we're in and still love it? We also have to understand that if he loves us in spite of our flaws, in spite of the things that we may do that is displeasing to him, we also have to move in that same compassion and love for one another. And I understand the question is, well, how can you love your enemies and how can you love people that do wrong by you? Right. Those are questions that are going to continue to be asked. And some people might say, well, you'll never understand the way I'm feeling. You'll never get it. You'll never be able to view the life the way that I view life, view life the way that I view life. Right. But the thing is, is that when you build your relationship with God and you talk with God and you read his story, the Bible, you then understand that a lot of the things that you have, you don't deserve it, but you have been given the opportunity to share in those beautiful things that you have. Right. And because of that, you no, know, it's something I wanted to maybe chime in on. Yeah, sure. Go for it. To that statement. Sometimes it's just not taking things so personal. You know, I think that's a, the first step to mm-hmm. letting go of hatred is to not take it personal and kind of detach from the situation or detach from your feelings and kind of look at the context of the situation for what it is. Um, yeah, even if some type of foul act has been committed or, you know, somebody has wronged you or done something wrong, um, trying to gain perspective on why that happened and taking your emotions out of it will allow you to see it for what it is. So mm. that's just a thought. So why do you why do you believe taking your emotions out of it is key in that because the first thing that really comes to mind for most people when somebody does them wrong or they do something that is blocking them from feeling love because love is also a feeling I believe anyway but how um, can love be a feeling if you can command it because it's, it's a combination of both the rational and how you feel. Okay, so let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, we'll use an example of our mom. If our mom was low on money, but knows that we needed supplies for school, 
so we're infants, we're young, right? Mm -hmm. And she wants to buy herself lunch for the week. But she also knows that she has enrolled us in school. And there's a requirement that we have marble notebooks, pencils, and pens, and all those other things, the necessities for school. She has the feeling and the need to eat for that week. But she also has the understanding and the need for what we have that is required for school. So, at least what I'm saying is, that's a choice. The choice to sacrifice at one's expense for the betterment of the one that needs it. Well, what makes you make that choice? Well, what makes me make that choice is that I love my... She makes loves her us. make that choice. Mm-hmm. And because she loves us, she's willing to sacrifice. So that's a choice. But Yeah, it's the combination of how she feels for us and also the rational understanding of what we need. So you're saying that so she's willing love to is make just the a, sacrifice. So you're saying that love is just that love is a feeling. It's both. It's a combination. So you'll think, okay, all right. I, it's a go ahead. It's a combination of how you feel that allows you to make rational choices that serve a benefit for others and also for yourself, because you can also love yourself the same way you love other people and the same way you love God. That's why you have to get to know his word, right? Uh-huh. And understand his ways. Uh-huh. And then the way you feel about those things as the way as well as the way you think about it in combination allows you to love. So usually to take it back to what we were talking about, uh-huh. um if your emotions are clouding your judgment, where it's making you just feel angry because somebody did, you feel and understand that somebody did something wrong to you. You have to gain perspective first and attach from the anger that you're feeling or the hatred that you're feeling, which is the sin. Mm-hmm. Right? And you have to gain perspective in a rational sense so that you can get to your other feelings. And those feelings of what? Compassion and, and mercy? Yeah, forgiveness as well. Once you gain the rational understanding of it, and then you understand the motives behind why somebody has done you wrong, or and then you understand like maybe this person has something with them, or maybe this person was going through something, you'll be able to gain empathy, right? And a certain level of sympathy as well. That'll allow you to be able to forgive them. But you have to take yourself out of your emotions first. So that you can get to your other emotions. Mm. Other than the one that's most prevalent. Which might be anger at the time. Because you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most of the time I, I feel. You can't have a, a deep anger. For somebody. If you understand their train of thought. It could still be. You know you can still recognize it as being foul. But you can also feel a sense of. You know. Uh, sadness or even. 
a certain level of empathy for them because you understand why it took place. Mm-hmm. I like that you use so. empathy and not sympathy because empathy has more to do with understanding the history of the conclusion that they came up with. Mm-hmm. Sympathy is something like poor baby or poor whoever it is. And you know, sympathy that, gets a bad rep, doesn't it? Well, I think, I think sympathy does because you're looking over the situation based upon how superior you're over in that incident. So in other words, if let's say I'm well off, let's say I make six figures, right? Mm-hmm. And I see somebody struggling because I'm in a better position, right? And I don't know what that situation might feel. And so when it comes to me, Right. I think most people that are in those instances are less empathetic and more sympathetic because they're they're superior to that person in that predicament at that time. When empathy is more ingrained in the idea that I understand why you're in this predicament, you've explained it to me. Not only am I getting clarity based upon the history of why you're in that predicament, therefore, I can move much more with a basis of understanding of how I can be helpful for you. When I sympathy doesn't care to know what the history is, it just cares to to show that because I'm superior in your predicament, I can I can sympathize with it, but it doesn't show the history of what needs to be understood in order to move forward with a better understanding of what's happening. So that's why mm. I would rather empathy be much more important than sympathy because sympathy means after it's all said and done you go back to the home and the comfortable bed that you have and you probably don't care about it after that well empathy might help you not only grow from that situation but be more mindful of your environment and the people you encounter and what they might be going through so it transitions from one individual to an overall perspective and then the insight that you have of the overall view makes you more conscientious of what's happening. So it shifts from one predicament to an overall struggle. And to me, that is where you have people that are much more curious to make a bigger impact on levels of giving to charity and foundations and establishing relationships with people that have the ability to make change. When sympathy is just you look at the situation and I don't think you're thinking too much in depth of how you can be helpful to people that are going through that. Make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Now. So. Last thing you last thing I want to bring up here, right? It's Christmas, right? It's a celebration of Christ coming down into the world to correct the problem, right? And if you've been listening so far, the problem is sin, right? One thing I think we should consider or realize is that the world was created by God for the Son. He loved the Son, and so that was the expression the expression was the creation of the world. Right? Now sin entered and therefore the son loved the father. Right? Loved God so much that he entered into our world, our reality, to prepare, to actually repair and address the issues of sin. 
by being subject to the human experience as a child to a full-fledged adult, right? So when we think about the reason for the season, Jesus is the ultimate gift. He entered humanity to correct sin, and through himself, he corrected the trust problem that humans have and had with God. He therefore connected us back to God, the Father, and what we were missing, which was love. So when we accept the Holy Spirit into our lives, we accept God into our lives, and the Holy Spirit takes manifestation within us, we now have the ability to love. Our relationship with God in regards to the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, those two commandments. Loving God is a choice, but then at the same time, with the Holy Spirit, what you're doing is you're conceding. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to manifest itself within you. And now you're capable of doing both. See, not just loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. That love that you have for God then transfers over to your ability to love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. To love strangers who are in need. To be there for people who you see that are unfortunate. So I want us to remember that we are God's gift to the world. To one another. Right? And what we should continuously do is give time to one another. And continue to show what God's love is all about. Right? God gives us love daily and we should do the same. So don't view the holiday as just an excuse to be loving and caring. It should happen every day. Be a gift to one another. That's the least that we can do. So don't let Christ's sacrifice be in vain. But let his life be an example. Of the fact that he loved us in spite of our flaws. He saw what the issue was and came into the world. And I think that's the biggest connection that we can make is that if God loved the son, he created the world and created us. And we're supposed to be mere gifts to to Jesus Christ. And there was a confusing element of fear entering and then lies entering and then it caused confusion. The only way to correct that was for the son to love God so much that he came in and became man, was able to not just empathize with our understanding of sin, live the perfect life that we can't live, being a predicament to show us that all things are possible through him, and then him become the sacrificial lamb. But more importantly, he it's known as Emmanuel. I mean, Emmanuel is God with us, right? For all those things to happen, to then correct the situation and bring us in a situation where not only are we loving one another, but God is loving us. And now we have the opportunity to do that. I think that's the best gift that we can ever be thankful for and appreciative of. And with that being said, that's all that I ask for you guys to do. Very simple message. Continue to love one another. Continue to love God. Let God love through you. Become a blessing for others who need it. And as long as we're doing that, we can continue to be a moving force in a world where peace, gratitude, 
and appreciation is happening. And hopefully over time, most of the world can get with the program. And we can be in a place where we might not agree on a lot of things. But what we can agree on is a love for life and a love for one another. And I think we'll be okay. What do you think? Word. All right. (laughs) Now we move into devotion. All righty. So this week's devotion, excuse me, is called Living What You Understand. There are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. How often do men fail to do something good out of lethargy or simply a lack of concern? Solomon instructed, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. As we talked about earlier, that is out of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. That's the King James Version. And I think a very good scripture that follows that up is, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And that is out of James chapter 4, verse 17. The Bible's most important teachings are very plain. There's little that's puzzling about them. The problem, however, is that they can be difficult to obey. For an example, many Christians are deeply bothered by Jesus' command, love your enemies, and that's out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. They've reasoned that he couldn't really have meant that literally, so they withhold love from people they don't like. There are many complex situations where you won't know the correct thing to do. In hindsight, yes, you may see clearly what you should have done. Once you understand clearly what you ought to do, however, it is a sin if you don't follow through and do it. I had to let that one breathe for a second. And here's a little prayer for us to go out into our week with. God... We come to you in Jesus' name and say, help me to obey the Bible's plan, simple teachings, even when it is difficult. Help me to truly be your disciple, loving you and obeying your commands through as best as possible. We say this in your holy name and we pray. Amen. Amen.